Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Hey there, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I am your host, Mitchell Shirk, and finally some spring-like conditions going on. I was actually able to get out and do some work. I've been cutting wood like crazy at my place. I had a bunch of ash trees uh, fall up and just make a mess on my property, and I'm trying to clean them up because I really want to do a good job this year of cleaning up some invasives on my property i have some trees i'd like to plant and i I just want to you know continue down the road of making my property what i want it to be Uh, i kind of got lazy the past few years i think i might have mentioned before i just haven't put as much time and effort into it as i as i wanted to or should have and i just tried to change my priority so i've been doing that Uh, i was working on that tonight um but uh, no, we've been rolling here, busy, uh, family stuff, been doing, uh, trying to get a bunch of podcasts lined up for you guys. i got some exciting stuff coming up through. Um, I was, uh, I just came off of a birthday party weekend, had the, the kids, uh, my, my, uh, my oldest just turned three and my youngest is just about to turn one. So we had a kind of an in-between joint birthday party. It was huge. It was quite the quite the process and and planning and and having that but you know what it was wonderful and uh, it's just been crazy i just i just sit down and think about all that's been going on now and i just can't believe we're almost through march we're we're rapidly approaching turkey season and spring and spring planting and gosh just a busy busy time of year and speaking of spring planting we are like i said getting very very close to getting ready to roll planters out and be planting corn and soybeans i'm making decisions on managing uh winter wheat at this point for for my clients and uh you know with that we're already thinking you know i'm thinking about food plots and i know a lot of you guys are and you know i've said this before and i'll say it again there is more than one way to skin a cat and i have continued to do things differently from the end of food plots for a while now and and i i don't i would not say that i've landed on anything perfect that i would just call good as gold i'm always trying to just tinker and learn what's going to work better on different properties and stuff but you know one thing i will say that i have learned from food plotting mostly from agriculture is the more you can keep something living and growing in the soil for a longer period of time and not have that soil be bare and exposed to wind, rainwater, any of the elements, and, and allow that soil to just do what it was naturally designed to do and grow things, uh, the better your plant species are. And understanding things like, you know, what does it mean to, to be regenerative? You know, the, the, you get a, the buzzwords regenerative ag and soil health. Like, what does that actually mean? Um, there are a few people out there 
um, and, and I'm going to say there's few people out there in the hunting world and food plot world that do a better job of understanding and explaining it to, to us um, as, as you know, consumers of content than the guests that I had this week. So what an awesome experience this was for me to have this guest on and interview him and talk about because, you know, we we go through a journey of food plotting in his career to where he's got now with the process, um, the the release process as it's it's known. And uh, that guest is somebody, like I said, I have, have followed his work for quite a long time. And as have many of you, and he's he's just an extremely respected individual. I have a ton of respect for this individual. Uh, I, you know, not just from a um, field work and career standpoint, but also as a person, the things he he does um, as a person for the for his community and what his values stand for. And uh, I'll, I'll I'll quit beating around the bush here. This week, um, our our guest is Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. You know, talk about a cool guy. I'll never forget, you know, when I was going through uh, my, my my decision in college and career, and, you know, when I was a freshman in college thinking, you know, I, I was, you know, majoring in biology, minor, minor environmental science, and, man, I thought I had to be a deer biologist or some kind of biologist, and, you know, I was looking at his internship programs and, and this and that, and I reached out to him, sent an email, like, trying to understand you know, uh, just just some guidance and direction. I'll never forget walking back from my my uh, I think it was a 7:45 a.m. class. Walking back around like at 8:50, 9 o'clock time frame, and uh, my phone ringing and seeing it was a Missouri number, and picked it up and said hello, and I heard Mitchell. This is Dr. Grant Wood speaking. And I, I like, I went into like a fanboy moment, like my heart sang. I was like, uh, uh, uh hello, Dr. Woods. It's real. It, thank you for calling. And it was, it was just a really cool experience. I'll never, ever forget that. But, you know, he, he, he really just said something along the lines of, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't what you would perceive it to be if you're thinking about this solely from a hunting perspective, which most of us know that. Um, maybe probably don't know it as as well as we should when you're if you're somebody like me who was thinking about uh, this as a you know wildlife biology as a career at the time, but uh, he just said you know I I really encourage you to to listen to what the creator is is trying to to put in your story you know that phone call it, it might have lasted you know four five six minutes. I will never forget that phone call. It was so cool. So it was really, really neat to uh, be in a position where I'm at now, almost 10 years later, you know, busy um, you know, in the world of agronomy and be able to relate to this food plotting system he's using as I get to see very, very similar things in the agricultural world. So what a cool conversation. Like I said, we talk a lot about the release process, no-till food plots, and understanding uh, how to have a minimal input system. And when I'm talking minimal inputs, I'm talking from the, the end of herbicides, synthetic fertilizers, things like that, and utilizing plants and the, the ecosystem to do what it was designed to do and, and produce um, food, produce tonnage 
nutrient-rich, nutrient-dense plants um, and how plants can do that in the right system. And, and he brings us through the journey of where he got started in food plotting to um, how he got into no-till to how he began tinkering with different blends and, and where we're at now. And this is a, it's really a journey in conversation. It's not just by the book, you know, Dr. Woods is a storyteller. He's He has such an um, artistic mind in his ability to explain things in a way that you know just allows people like you and I to just understand so much better. And uh, he uses that and comes in full circle on so many of the questions we ask. And this is, you know, I have a hard time saying this, but, but I'm, I'm going to say it because um, I've had so many fantastic guests on the show. I, I've, I've been blessed to be able to talk with so many different people, and I appreciate every one of them who have had their time. But, man, th- this one is an extra special one for me. Th- this has been one of my favorite episodes that I've been able to bring to you guys just because it's somebody who I've looked up to for such a long time. And then it's about a topic that I'm extremely passionate about. So it, it was a great opportunity. I really think you guys are going to like this episode. I think you're going to be able to learn a lot about it. You know, if you follow Dr. Woods in any capacity for a long time, there's definitely going to be things that um, you've heard him say before. But there's a lot of other things and a lot of context to our conversation that maybe you haven't heard before. And I think you'll take value to. So, you know, if, if you're thinking about how you want to manage food plots this spring, this conversation is definitely something that I think will at least fire you up and put you in the direction um, that, that we're discussing today. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, like I said, I enjoyed bringing it to you. So hope all is well. Have a great week, guys, and let's get to this episode. So uh, joining me today, I'm going to do my best to not get all giddy and excited because this is a special guest I'm really excited to, to have on with me this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Grant Woods, thank you for taking some time and chatting with us. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to it. Yeah, you're a you're a, a busy, busy guy. But one thing that's been really, really cool is uh, I just love how you network with people, and uh, you know you're not afraid to share your wealth of knowledge and share share whatever you've learned in creation and help people. Well, I'm usually learning from other people. I like visiting because I like learning, so it's a it's a good thing for me to do. I, a lot of people out there have a lot of knowledge and experience. I like learning from practitioners. Of course, I come from a university background, you know, and stats and research, but through my career, that, that's very valid. That's still awesome. But I've learned that oftentimes practitioners, maybe farmers or whatever, some of them are, you know, pushing the edge somewhere. They're trying something new. And after they've tried and kind of figured out, then oftentimes university, go, man, let's see if that really works and they run a test. Well, I kind of like being on that cutting edge. And if you've got, in this case, a farmer that's just growing great crops, a little bit more profitable, doesn't have as much soil erosion, whatever you're looking for, then why not visit with them and learn from someone that's actually doing it? I just really enjoy learning from practitioners. And one thing that I want to emphasize here, because uh, it's important to me on my channel, is, is your openness to expressing your belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and, and sharing that truth with people. I really appreciate that, that you bring that into into your show for people to listen. Amen. That's a, a core to everything I do. You know, a lot, some people say that it is a core. And I, real simply, when I was six years old, I 
first grade. I had a little trap line, a little rabbit box trap line. Of course, I thought it was a big Yukon trapper out there, you know, and it was in Missouri, cold, snowy, right before Christmas break that year. And I'd heard at the barber shop somewhere, I wish I could remember where, but they were going to restock some deer in the county. There were no deer. I'd never seen a living deer. I think I'd seen one on Daniel Boone's show or something like that. And one morning early, I, I did my chores. I went out to quote unquote run my trap line, like three little box traps for rabbits. And I found a female fawn in one of our little farm fields that had been shot in the head. First deer I ever saw had been poached. And I mean, from that moment on, I, I couldn't imagine something as valuable as a deer being, you know, poached like that. So I really disliked poachers, lawbreakers, whatever, and just been fascinated with deer. Well, years later, I, I come to believe that I think God literally used that moment to make me super interested in deer. And whatever skills I have, maybe I can, you know, get someone's attention, a fellow hunter or something, and share Christ with them. And and that's literally been the basis for my career and, and still is today. I, I like learning about creation and the creator's plan, which is a lot about the release process, right? Using less synthetic inputs and whatnot to make his creation very productive. We're not making it. We're kind of restoring it. And and I'll take one more thing down this rabbit hole. I'm not mad at anyone. You know, when the first pioneers come through and they're cutting trees and burning and do whatever, they were just surviving, right? Mm -hmm. And more recently when they got, you know, gasoline powered engines and mowed board plows, they were trying to feed a growing nation. No one was trying to cause erosion. That probably wasn't even a word then. So I'm not mad. I'm never mad about the past. I think we can learn by studying past events and hopefully improve in the future. And that's what the release process is. Or in ag, it's called regenerative ag wholeheartedly and one thing i'd like to just make mention of before we go on to this next part you were talking about you know the creator's will for our life and 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 such one thing that i've truly believed in in there are moments there are those little moments that god uses i think to uh guide and direct us and give us uh just thoughts of advice but you know the, the creator's will for our life is to to love him and follow him and uh it's amazing how you know there's an open book with the tools and and interest that he have to use us to network with people and show share that truth and i just love what you've done through something with with as deep of scientific research and and hard work as you put into it i just really appreciate that but um i i wanted to kind of go down a rabble we're talking about food plots and a lot of our conversations and of all the people that um, I come to my mind when I think of uh, a journey in food plots, you know, you've done a really good job of documenting from the time you started growing Deer TV and the Proving Grounds to where you're at now. I mean, I mean, you're up over 700 episodes, and there's a ton of information packed in into those episodes. But I, I'd really like to, un, you know, invest in uh, some time discussing the journey in from from the time that ground was was cleared and no-till because i remember watching some of them first episodes with a with a no-till drill and listening to the the rocks go through that and I, it just makes me cringe it oh and yeah. uh, then to seeing where it uh with where the proven grounds ended up in your your soul it's just a unique journey and i i'd love for you to to walk us through with that based on uh, how you ended up coming to the release process but no-till yeah. drilling is that you started off no-tilling right I did. So Trace and I, my wife, Trace and I were living in South Carolina. We had 13 acres. I was all excited. And all along our driveway was a food plot. You know, that's what you saw. You pulled in our driveway as a food plot. And, and then you finally got to the house. You got to get your, you know, your values right here, I guess. But anyway, and I, and I was, uh, at that time, I'd started a little company called Biologic, later sold it to the Mossy Oak Boys, still friends with them. And 
I was planting some test plots and, you know, just trying different things. I went to New Zealand and learned about brassicas and want to see if, you know, a deer in North America would eat them or not. So doing stuff, planting single species at a time, doing stuff. And, and I'd borrow my buddy's old Ford tractor and his three-point plow and just plow that clay till he just couldn't, you know, it'd just be dust flying everywhere. Nope, one more pass would be good. And, and kind of noticed, you know, a loss of production and whatnot. And Trace and I had the opportunity, we, we found an old burnout cattle ranch here at the Proven Grounds. And to be honest, I've never worked a property in my 31-year career that had as many cattle skeletons where cattle just starved to death on the ranch. That's how poor it was and why we could afford it. It was very inexpensive land. It was nothing like today. It was, it was, it was rough. And one scratch food plot or two in had no money and had, you know, got hold of a tractor somehow in the county here, our local county, which is still a practice today. A lot of people can use as a NRCS office. Most counties in America have an NRCS office and, a lot of those offices will rent no-till drills. It was part of a big government program long ago, and they vary a little bit around different states, but they're typically like some like seven bucks an acre or minimum of $70, real inexpensive. Great asset, I think, for people to use. Now, there's some issues, right? You may not get to drill right when you want it because when it's proper planning time, everybody wants to drill or it's broken from the last guy who didn't take care of it. But what, it was a great tool for us. So knocked some trees down, locust trees and cedar trees is what I had, locust trees and cedar trees, and uh, and rented this drill. And literally after removing those trees, there was no topsoil. This mm. is the Ozark Mountain that's known to be highly roaded. The county is Stone County. That's the name of the county, Stone County. And I literally, at the time, I didn't know any better. I was planting treated seed, had all kind of nasty fungicide stuff on there, but they'd be colored purple or orange. So you knew they were dangerous. A lot of people don't know. Those colors are a warning. Uh, and I would drill by going down a path and I could see my seeds laying on top of rocks. So I know how to space over because there was no dent in the rocks. It wasn't like I was making furrows in the ground. Mm. I would see the seed and it rained, right? God blessed us. And it grew somehow I, in hindsight, I don't know how, but it grew. And, 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 and then I had no plow to plow it under. So the next time I planted, I just plant right through that. Right. Mm. I just, it wasn't, Oh, I'm doing virginity bag. That wasn't even a word back then. Literally. It's just the tools I had at hand. Right, you were using conventional ag purposes, just with no-till. You were you were doing yeah. mostly monocultures and commercial fertilizer, herbicides. Correct. Well, you know that's an interesting point. Our, our local co-op here in Missouri is MFA, Missouri Farmers Association. It's Tennessee Farmers Co-op in Tennessee, and you know various different names throughout the nation. And I went to I took a soil test sample, of course. And I went to my local MFA store and took that sample in there and they said, okay, you need this, you need this fertilizer. And I paid for it. It was even expensive back then. They brought their truck out. My lands again, really rough. And I never forget this. I stand my porch, just so excited. I'm a fertilizer food plot. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a big boy now. This is cool. And he made one pass and just drove out the driveway. He didn't even stop. Just drove out the driveway. And I chased the guy down literally and caught him right before he got the driveway actually. And Hey, you know, you have a flat or, you know, what's wrong? I said, Oh, your land's too rough, man. It's, I'm not wasting my time fertilizing some little food plot and drove out with the fertilizer I purchased in the back of his truck. I never forget it. Wow. And this was, again, a, a God point in my life because, you know, I'm, of course, I was 21 years ago. I'm younger and honorier and whatnot. And I get kind of upset. And so, by golly, I get my truck and drive down to Arkansas, which isn't that far from here, to an implement dealer. And I'm going to buy me a buggy spreader so I can spread my own fertilizer. Right. And I'm all fired up and I go in there. This I'm just still, we're still buddies today, actually, but this nice young Mennonite salesman, uh, who was pretty calm and he could just tell I was, you know, man, I was 
fighting mad, you know. And he's like, no, now calm down, Mr. Woods. Calm down. There may be a solution besides buying. A, I wanted an Adam stainless steel fertilizer buggy. They're like the, you know, the best of the best fertilizer buggies right. at the time anyway. And he's like, now calm down, Mr. Woods. My my uncle Galen just down the road here, he's kind of crazy. He'll drive anywhere and he makes composted turkey litter. And I'd heard about compost in college, but you know, back then you were taking your garbage out and putting some sawdust with it in the backyard, turning it. I'm, like, oh, you know, I'm trying to grow big deer here. I need some NP and K. He's mm-hmm. like, well, you just might want to visit with Uncle Galen before you do anything. Well, long story short, I did go visit with Uncle Galen, who was not being mean. You know, he had the beard and suspender overalls, kind of worn out, you know. And Uncle Galen was a genius, literally goes all over the world now teaching in compost and soil microbes. And to be honest, at that time, I didn't understand soil microbes. I was just like, well, this is cheaper than fertilizer, and he's willing to drive my heels. Put some on there, buddy. That's what I was thinking. But through the years, I worked with Galen for many years. He finally sold his recipe and stuff to a guy further away, and it was just too cost prohibitive to ship it here. Mm. It was a great product. It was just cost prohibitive or become that way. And Galen taught me a lot about NPK. God never did plants just take that out of soil. They go through microbes. Microbes actually go in and out of roots, and you know it's really fascinating science. And Galen's the guy that got me thinking this. Never been in college in his life. Here I am just, I don't mean this wrong, but, you know, fresh PhD. and got the world mm-hmm. by the tail. And this farmer just taught me, again, a practitioner, just really took me to school. And he'd studied all over, was kind of like a Kung Fu student with some masters of composting. And, and so that got me thinking, hey, there might be a different way than paying for this MPNK. And it's, of course, it's synthetic made, nitrogen was part of the process how to build the atomic bomb in Germany. Mm-hmm. And when the war was over and we won, that scientist came to America. You can go online and read all about this. And they said, well, I got this process, but I don't know what to do with it. And they said, well, we think we can use nitrogen for agriculture. Back then it was really cheap. Everyone applied way too much, kind of some of the problems we have today related to that. But So Galen took me under the wing. And as I started getting into that cycle, that circle of it, he introduced me to some buddies and we started talking microbes and soil and I, and then I started planting blends. I, I never, at that time, never thought about, well, who would plant, you know, a, whatever, a clover and a the radish together or what, you know, simple blends back then. Yeah. Was that just something you wanted to try or like, how did you start even start doing that? Because, you know, there was a time that that was taboo. Oh yeah. I got, I got called a lot of nasty stuff back in the day. Uh, you know, I started thinking basically with clover. Clover used to be really strong, still is, of course. And But clover in areas like this that traditionally go through a kind of a dry summer, shallow soils don't hold much moisture. Your clover brown up, might leave you with nothing but weeds for a few months out of you, right? Or when it gets really cold, it goes dormant. And, and Man, I need to fill that gap somehow. And so, and even some farmers back then, they were planting wheat as a cover crop with clover. And, then I kind of discovered cereal rye, which grows more cold, hardy days. So I put some wheat, which is slightly more palatable in the warm season. And then when it gets really cold, the rye is more palatable. So I'm like, man, I can do clover, wheat, and rye and cover some more bases. And then I'm like, well, boy, when radishes first pop out of the ground, they're really palatable. So I could do a few radishes, some clover, wheat, and rye. And it just grew from there. And now I'm working on a summer blend right now. I think it's got 14 species in it. And it's experimental for me. I, I, I'm going to have failures. I know that. I like seeing, because once you get into it, you learn some plants complement each other. For example, buckwheat, the, the, all plants leak carbonic acid. It's called exudates. And it just a little bit comes, they make more than they need. 
that comes out of roots. And you get that through photosynthesis, right? C6 carbon, H12O6, a byproduct of photosynthesis is a lot of carbon. And a little, little bit aside, we hear all this, oh, we got all this carbon in there, carbon's a pollutant, no, carbon, carbon, carbon. That's not my world science. I'm not arguing that one or other, but I do know this. Carbon is the most important food for plants, bar none, mm. over N, P, and K or anything else. Plants are about 70% carbon. They're a small percent nitrogen. Carbon, if we have a problem, we need more carbon in soil. When you drive by in the south, you know, it's all red from iron oxidates or real gray clay or real yellow clay. That's a lack of carbon. Carbon makes soil black. Carbon's black. You've probably seen carbon before. Sure, sure. Carbon makes soil black. Uh, and, and so our farming practices have pushed carbon up in the air instead of pumping it back in the soil. And so by planting more species together and getting these different strengths of carbonic acid, because our nutrients come from the parent material, i.e. rocky stuff. Mm -hmm. And another lesson, of course, I was taught in college and soil classes, it takes about a thousand years to make an inch of soil. And you know how this professor says it, you memorize it to pass the test, you believe it. And Galen's like, I, I, I'm going to build about a quarter inch a year if you want me to. And I'm like, it takes a million years, Galen. You can't do that. But right. by not disking the soil and the plants just pumping into it, I average about a quarter inch a year here. have been for several years. And on those rocks where I started, I have many inches of really black, really super healthy soil, organic matter. It's incredible when you... When I go back and I look at those first videos of you no-till and to, to now, and, and I'm thinking of the videos, um, <clears throat> it was some of the ones you you, you put last last spring uh, with Ward Labs and seeing the how to soil yeah. test and going through that soil test. When I watch the video, and, it, and guys, if you've listened, if you're listening, you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a specific video about nine months ago. Uh, going through a soil test on the proving grounds and I was absolutely astounded at the values on those from your macronutrients to your micronutrients into the soil health aspect which is a, is another interesting topic of, of uh, soil testing that we haven't really talked about here and maybe we can get into that but uh, what's so fascinating is correct me if I'm wrong but there hasn't been a lot of fertilizer on that specific field of, of any any form other than the release process for quite a long time yeah we haven't purchased any fertilizer or any lime or no magic juice in a jug or whatever for eight years except and i want to always tell the truth literally i have bought a few bags of fertilizer pelletized lime and i'll do a little corner of a field or something as a test mm -hmm. you know to take a soil sample there versus over here or whatever uh but that's a huge cost savings to not be buying especially in the current market today fertilizer prices are you know, double what they were last year, and last year's really high. Uh, but and it's also time, right? I don't have to take the time to go buy that and spread it or spread it by hand in my small plots. Um, so I've not bought any. Hear me clearly, folks. Not, not like fudging a little bit. I apply none. No compost. You know, I'm not. There's not a workaround here. I always kind of work around on. So there's no workaround. I use plants and a good rotation, and I never disturb soil. I, I just follow the. the pardon me, the basic principles of soil health. Again, going back to the crater. And the time of that, when I got going, I started thinking about, well, gosh, all the historians think there was about 60 million bison. I call them buffalo on the Great Plains. That's an estimate, you know, give or take 10 million. Who knows? A bunch of them, right? Big bison, big plains bison, not woodland bison over east. were about twice as big as the average cow now. So 120 cows, 120 million. 
there's not 120 million cows in the Great Plains now with all the synthetic fertilizer, lime, herbicide. Now, a lot more development, not as much land, all that stuff. But this was happening under God's plan uh, with fire. Fire was, you know, wildfire, Native American set fire, you know, accidental fires, whatever. Uh, and buffalo's grazing. And I was in Yellowstone, family vacation. I was working out there a little bit as a naturalist and then, took, you know, took a week for the family and I to go play tourist and whatnot. And we happened to be watching a, a herd of buffalo in Yellowstone crossing the Yellowstone River. And there was some little calves. And my daughter was worried about them getting swept down the river, you know, little family story. And I was thinking about, well, the, the goal, because I've worked in Yellowstone, the goal is 500 head of buffalo in Yellowstone. There's 6,000 government won't kill them. You know, it, it's a bad thing. They're eating us out of house and home. Um, and by the way, one of my pet peeves, we say our national parks are natural ecosystems. You know, in Yellowstone now, we got wolves and wolverines and cougars, you know, all stuff. But there used to be a sign at the South Gate said Yellowstone was home to 30,000 Native Americans. Well, that's the most dominant predator, not grizzly bears, Native Americans. So Yellowstone's not natural until we allow hunting in there again. Bingo. You know that the elk stare at you. Yeah, they you do know? ridiculously. <laughs> if you had a bow or thirty out six in your hand, they'd be going the other way, buddy. Just a few shots, they figured that one out quick. So they've they've allowed that to be uh, the vegetation to be extremely overbrowsed because it's not managed as it was set up for that ecosystem. Too many critters out there, and unfortunately, a lot of deer herds across America are the same way. There's more mouths than groceries because. And a real simple thing for your listeners to do, I, I make all my interns do this. Some of them don't like it, but I still, you know, I'll sit in truck with them, make them do it. But you can go to YouTube and just search for Daniel Boone's biography. Daniel Boone was very literate, wrote a lot. He couldn't, he didn't spell much better than I do, but he wrote a lot. And uh, he talks about going all the way across Kentucky and he's wide open, just, you know, a tree every hundred yards and grass and forbs in between uncountable turkeys. He wrote one place, he heard a turkey gobble from east to west. He was never out of hearing range of a turkey gobble as he crossed Kentucky. Now turkey populations are plummeting, right? Mm. And more recently, a brilliant researcher for the Forest Service, United States Forest Service. And that's very political. I got a lot of buddies work there. I'm just telling, it's just political. Wrote a true scientific paper said, we don't have an issue with too many deer. We have an issue with unnatural, low-quality habitat. Mm. And that's true because throughout most of America, we have a closed canopy forest. But every area, like in my area, there was an early explorer, think like Lewis and Clark's at much smaller scale, a guy named Schoolcroft went through here looking for lead mine. And this was when there were just a few trappers in the area. You know, he was seeing Native Americans and smelling Native American campfires and whatnot. It's only about 70 pages of notes. It was a shorter journey than Lewis and Clark. He just may swing through the Ozarks here. And he talks about these wide open oak savannas and grass as high as a horse's bridle. And he never mentions tick. Lewis and Clark never mentions tick because these areas were wide open and got more sunshine. Ticks need moisture like deep leaf litter. And there was a lot of fire, a lot of Native American set fire. And fire, of course, desiccates the grounds and ticks have to have moisture. So the best, like any animal, we can improve the habitat and make more of a species or allow that species to propagate, which we've done for ticks, right? Thick leaf litter, no fire, perfect tick habitat. Or we could manage against ticks, open up that forest, let some more sunshine down, have grasses and forbs growing instead of leaf litter, burn it off every now and then. And research shows clearly that those tick populations, they're not gonna wipe them out, but they will decline. The reason we don't wipe them out is 
when that turns green, it's the best food in the neighborhood. So deer come back in there, rabbits come in there, and they shed a few ticks. Yeah, it's quite interesting that, you know, I have conversations with farmers all across Pennsylvania. And it's amazing how I have conversations with farmers that complain about the high densities of deer and extreme, uh, you know, uh, defoliation in crop fields. And then in the, the same communities, we'll come have uh, conversations with uh, people in the public and hunters and managers that say we don't have enough deer. And the ideologies of, of uh, kind of a social carrying capacity are, are quite different. And I've had this conversation with a lot of my growers and try to emphasize that, you know, one of the, the biggest problems is there's, there's probably not as many deer across this landscape as you think there are that are, you know, defoliating your crops. But the one thing that I have noticed across the ridges and valleys in our in our state is the low quality habitat surrounding these crop fields that has forced a lot of uh, browse pressure to occur on highly manicured croplands. You know, we got a lot of uh, high quality fertilizers and manures and high quality soils that produce good corn, soybeans, wheat, and, and a, a host of other crops. And I, I think it's causing that much more uh, stress on, on crop fields when it, it and in reality shouldn't. And that kind of stirs a, a question in my mind going back to the release process and building soil and building for fertility. I, I'm curious, um, you know, Watching the, the proving grounds uh, build to what it <clears throat> what it is today, there was a, a process that happened uh, not just in your food plots but on the landscape itself, and uh, it was high quality food and cover across the entire landscape, including food plots. So, you know, we're, we're talking about having high quality uh, native browse uh, and, and such. But do you find that? because uh, this is what I get. People ask me a lot, well, how do I implement a, a release system, a no-till system that's going to uh, build my fertility and this and that? Um, but I, I'm a lot of the time what I see is it doesn't seem like the, the amount of emphasis is put into the native habitat and there's more pressure on food plots. I'm, I'm sure you've seen that in, in your travels yeah. across the country. So can you explain to us a little bit, like when people are listening to the release process, this no-till system, regenerative ag, whatever buzzwords we want to call it, uh, Dr. Woods, um, what are some of the things that we need to watch out for to make this really, really uh, work? Let's say it's a, a field that has really poor fertility, you know, something like when you started out and you're, you're trying to build it, what are some of the things you need to watch out in order to make this success? And what should be the expectation uh, when you're going into this journey? I think you see the key word expectations. And we know that satisfaction is a function of expectations. So if you carve out a quarter acre food plot on the side of one of those ridges in Pennsylvania, and for a mile in every direction, it's closed campy forest, you're going to attract some deer as long as there's still forage there. But you're probably not going to make a lot of progress in improving the soil's health because your plants never get big enough. You know, we we think about a plant like an iceberg. You see about one third above soil and there's two third of roots below the soil. Now, when you go to pull the plant out of soil, you don't see that. But you hear this because you're ripping off all the little hair roots or the biggest portion of biomass. They, they tend to stay in the soil. But And I have that at my place. I can go to the, a more timbered portion of my property where I haven't done as much TSI or timber stand improvement yet and scratch out a little food plot by hand tools. I do it all the time for hunting. I call them IDOs plant and I won't get the tonnage per square foot or unit area, 
as I do in a bigger field because there's so much pressure there because they're so close to cover. So ideally, the release process would be a combination of working on your native habitat and releasing its potential, which usually means opening up the canopy and suppressing or killing the low quality trees and leaving the better quality trees. Now, I'm a forester also by training. I have a degree in forestry too. And, and every time I say this, I get a bunch of hate mail from foresters. So please, let's just skip that step this time, okay? <laughs> I've had enough hate mail. You're not gonna say anything. Someone had already called me fat, ugly, skinny, fat and skinny at the same time. I, I've already heard it all. So, but foresters are there to make a living. And so they want to naturally, and I understand, take the better trees because they get a better return for their effort, right? If you cut a, a big old cherry saw timber log, you're going to make more money at the mill than hardwood pulp, as a facetious example. So foresters often want to take the best and leave the rest. That's their economic model. Sometimes a landowner has a different objective, especially if they purchase land for recreation, maybe to hunt or scenic beauty or whatever. And they want to leave those best trees. And I think there's a very workable compromise. We need to realize, because oftentimes foresters say, and this is this rule of thumb I see across America, well, we're going to cut everything 18 inches or bigger, which tends to be the better trees, right? They grew better, straighter, and you leave the worst trees. You do that a couple of rotations on your property, you're left with junk wood. And it's decades to turn that around. So instead of just taking a harvest by diameter, which is really easy, tell the operator, hey, buddy, you know, Bob, if it's over 18 inches, put that thing on a truck and do it by species or take out all the crooked trees and you're going to make less profit, but now you're leaving the better trees. And, and so for recreational landowners, not production timberland, recreational landowners, we have to have a change of heart of forestry in most areas where we're doing true timber stand improvement, our harvest for commercial or profit or pre-commercial harvest. You're just out there hacking and squirting, working to improve the timber future value for you or your family and wildlife habitat at the same time. Because I won't take much time, but in simple terms, I'll use pine trees because they're so markable and easy. If you've got a pine tree not big enough to make a two before, that would be sold as pulp and that's a lower value per ton. And if you get into chip and saw, you can cut at least a two before out of the middle. Well, that's more valuable for the same volume wood chipped up because it has to be straight and a certain grain quality and whatnot. And if you get big enough to cut a two by six, well, two by six is one and a half two by fours. But if you go to Home Depot or wherever you go, a two by six is more than twice a two by four because it takes a bigger tree. You had to wait more years to even cut the two by four. You know, on on up, a two by eight, two by 12 is a very expensive tree because you had to have a pretty big tree. So if the landowner can be patient and wait a little bit more, they don't need that money to pay their mortgage right then. They will make more money per year if you cost figure this over a period of years by selling a better product and allowing their timber to improve where they can have a continual stream of better products over time. But unfortunately, that takes some thinking and some patience. So a lot of people just, hey, cut everything 16 inches or bigger. Mm. We've done that for a couple of rotations now throughout much of the Whitetails range. And we have historically low quality forests, especially in our hardwoods, because they're not managed precisely as pines are often. So I'm encouraging recreational landowners to turn that trend and manage for better quality timber. And by doing so, you will have better deer habitat. You're going to give that tree more room around it, more sun to express its genetic potential. And more sun means you're getting some grasses and forbs, which give you cover and food. 
and you're taking out those low quality trees because remember growing deer is all about photosynthesis we have to do photosynthesis to make grain or protein any of those things we consider feed all start with photosynthesis none of that happens without photosynthesis cows don't gain weight bucks don't gain weight bucks don't grow antlers those don't have fawns without photosynthesis if they're in a pen they're hauling in feed that was created by photosynthesis somewhere else it literally all starts with photosynthesis but when we have trees all the photosynthesis is happening you know pick a number 40 60 80 feet above the ground we have to have photosynthesis within about zero to three or four feet of the ground to grow better deer so circling back around if you approach like i've done your native habitat be it timber grasslands or whatever and food plots at the same time you will make much faster gains because you're growing more tonnage and spreading the deer out a little bit now with that said one last thing you plant a one acre soybean field soy or alfalfa something really highly palatable whatever you pick in the middle of a mile of closed campy forest you're not gonna make much progress it's just so much better it's like grant do you want ice cream or do you want brussels sprouts so i'm gonna take the ice cream every time and deer are going to take that really lush forage versus a bramble offside here. And you're going to compare that monoculture in a food plot the same way that you would compare a monoculture in conventional agriculture. We're trying to push maximum tonnage and maximum yield potential in that, and we're going to harvest a very great deal from that, and that's going to deprive a lot from that soil. So, you know, sticking with your the, the release process, so... Um, with, with some of the fields, like the, like the field that you would have had that soil test on, can you give us a snapshot of the, the timeline and the years of progress and how you saw the trends in your soil samples change and the tonnage, therefore, change in those food plots? Yeah, that's a great question. So I started pretty much with soybeans and deer. I'm, I'm 100 miles from any type of ag. Deer had never seen a soybean. There's no grain carts, no silos, no combines anywhere near me. You, you never see them on the highway or anything. There's none, zero. Hard for some people to imagine. So I planted eagle seed soybeans. I know the family well, good family. And and man, they were getting five feet tall because deer didn't, deer would, I'd watch deer. They would walk through the soybeans and eat a ragweed on the side of the field. And it used to, but I'm like, I spent all this money making this food plot, you know? And, and that happened about two years. And so I'm growing a lot of biomass that wasn't being consumed and recycling that in the soil and adding a little bit of compost as budget allowed. And then deer discovered soybeans. And I made a mistake. I hung with them too long, but the last few years I planted them, they never got lip high. And I'm spending quite a bit of resources, time, diesel fuel, whatever, plus seed. And I just, I wasn't making progress. So I kind of went backwards a little bit. And I started planting some blends in the winter. Most people start with fall. It's easier, less weed competition or whatever. And I started planting blends and man, I'm, all of a sudden my soil tests are getting a nudge better and I'm growing more tons. It's not lip high, you know, I'm, and in the spring when deer back off food plots and go to native vegetation, cause it greens up, my food plots are getting chin high on me. I'm, I'm six feet tall. You know, I'm, I'm walking through here getting pollen in my nose. And I started really adding tonnage and about that time, I found a farmer named David Brandt. You can still go to YouTube, find him. Dave, I, I've never met David. He's a brilliant man, love shake his hand. And he's a production ag farmer, mainly on rented land. He didn't own a lot of land in Ohio, in an area where development's taken up most of cropland. So it's real competitive to get land. And he went broke and all he, he sold all his equipment and he bought a no-till drill, last ditch effort, and played with that for a few years, started making a little progress. And he got a roller crimper. So he's terminating with the crimper instead of herbicide. And, 
A herbicide, of course, is not natural. That's a toxin in soil. I'm not anti-herbicide, but I want people to use the least amount necessary. I relate herbicide like a, a, a root canal. I don't want one, but if I have to have one to save the tooth next to it, I'll certainly get one. And if you're full of really noxious weeds, you're probably not going to get on top of it with just a roller crimper. So you may have to use a pass or two of herbicide just to kind of set the clock back. It's pretty simple stuff. And David Brandt went from these yucky, yucky, baby poop colored yellow clay soils to right now, it has 22 inches of black dirt. Now he's been doing it long, longer than me and gets a little bit more rain. Uh, and it's so he's changed his soil so much. And this is all published. There's, there's no rumor here. Uh, that the NR, he's one of two places in North America that the NRCS has went in and reclassified soil because on his side of fence, it is so different than the rest of the county. Mm. And he's making way more profit and putting less inputs in. And David got me started through his sharing his information on YouTube about roller crimping. So I scrounged around and got me a roller crimper and stopped using as much and now almost no zero herbicide. And when I let crops get full maturity, okay, so the cereal grains, rye, wheat, whatever, you know, depending on the crop in the year in the rain, it's four to six feet tall, a lot of tons. And clover's just dog ear thick, because if you plant just grasses like small grains, some sun will get through there and hit soil. And I don't want to waste any sunshine. I want every bit of sunshine hitting the leaf. That's God's, the best solar reactor on the planet. Elon Musk will never make a solar panel as efficient as a leaf. It just can't be done. There's waste in chemical energy, right? Right. So God's got these beautifully efficient solar panels that make energy, and that energy transfers to the soil in the form of those carbon exudates, which feeds the bacteria, which converts rock to fertilizer. So I got a roller crimper, and now I'm growing ton, not one ton, tons of forage. It matures past where deer want to eat it. I let it get to the, the dough stage, so it's really not palatable. And when plants are making seeds, that are fully formed, but still moist. They're not viable yet. They're real weak. So crimping them just terminates it easy. And I would plant through this really tall stuff. I started crimping first and trying to plant through it. And it's so, you know, you got four inches of duff. You're almost no, no-till drill will cut through it. You're getting seed hung up in the vegetation. So again, David Brandt showed me, although he didn't know he showed me, hey, plant first and then crimp. That's called planting green. So I just tried it. I mean, no, no one, I don't think anyone in Missouri was doing it, let alone down here in the Ozarks. I'm getting laughed at and, you know, poke fun at. You got to have a little thick skin to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I plant green. I mean, you're, the beautiful thing about plant green, you never get lost, right? Either right. the vegetation's kind of laying down or you haven't planted there yet. You know if you've skipped anything. <clears throat> so I'm planting green. My radio's getting full of pollen. You know, people are laughing at me. And then I crimp once the vegetation gets about two inches tall. And you're thinking, where are you going to kill it? Well, when you drive through your yard, you don't kill your grass, right? It stands back up in a day or two. Those young plants are so pliable. They just stand back up. So there's a lot of beauty here. We talked about over browsing. You've got four-foot tall vegetation and a two-inch tall, you know, brassica or buckwheat or sunflower or soybean, whatever it is. I have a mix of all those. Deer can't find it because they don't stick their head down to four feet of vegetation to get there. So it's like a greenhouse it's if it gets cold it's keeping that cold from getting all the way to ground harsh rain's not pounding it it's not splashing soil up on the leaves which is how plants get bacteria it takes all those issues away i don't spend any money on fungicide at all that's a total waste of time for me and, and so now i got this little greenhouse protecting my plants while they're getting their root system so they can handle browse pressure better and again the release process is just working with creation because if you think about the prairie 
seeds would fall down. Maybe buffalo would come through and trample it, and they'd grow up in that duff. It was never bare ground. The ground was never bare. Right. So practitioners like David Brandt and many others, and looking at natural cycles is where the release process come from. Can can you uh, dig a little bit more into, so planting green, you already talked about it. So you're having a standing living crop that's present. You know, I do that a lot. I'm fortunate that my portion of the agriculture world in, in Pennsylvania, here we have a lot of that. And it's really exciting to see yeah. that unfold. Um, but I have personally run into some struggles when you're talking about putting cash crops into planting green and managing seeding rates and having really thick covers and sometimes having some residue management struggles. Have you had any of those struggles in, in your in your uh, your time messing with uh, no-till and planting green into this release process? Once I started planting green versus planting after I crimped, I haven't. But I think there's a couple of twists that really help me. I wait a little later than a lot of people do, probably a week or two. I let my soil get really warm, and I make sure there's adequate moisture. So my seeds are just blowing out of the ground. I'll find some seeds that just maybe they hit a rock or whatever, and it didn't get into furrow very well. But it's protected by four inches of mulch. Well, that root finds the soil, and that baby's off to the races. And I don't have much weed competition because weed seeds, like no one's really ever seen a ragweed seed or pigweed. They're, they're so fine, they're like flour. I mean, if you shake it on your hand, you're seeing, but you don't see them blowing through the air. Well, those seeds have, all seeds have what I call onboard energy. And until they make leaves and photosynthesize, they don't get any more energy. Just putting a root in ground doesn't really give me, you got to photosynthesize. So you've got your ground level. You've got four inches of pretty thick mulch from your past crop you've crimped down. And you got a big old picket, sunflower, even buckwheat, you know, bean, pea, milo, whatever seed there. It's got quite a bit of onboard energy. And we'll have enough energy for that seedling to weave through the duff and get up there and make two leaves and photosynthesize. But a ragweed, a pigweed, any of those really noxious weeds, uh, sun hemp, or not sun hemp, uh, water hemp, those seeds are so small, they tend to starve to death right. before they get up and make a leaf and photosynthesize. So really inexpensive and pretty effective, not 100%, but pretty doggone effective weed control that yep. just fits a natural system. Absolutely. So I haven't, but I'm disciplined to wait for my soil conditions to be right for my seeds to blow out of the ground. If you plant some seeds, typically the softer shelled seeds, like a soybean or a pea or something soft, not hard like corn or clover and they get kind of warm and kind of wet, they're going to germinate. And it's a real slow process, and that's more time for insects or fungus to attack them. I want my seeds blowing out of the ground, just blow past that stage. It's kind of like if we could magically snap our fingers and get turkey poults one month old, we'd have a lot higher survival rate because that first month they just get slaughtered. Well, if you plant a seed that's just growing really slow and weak, its chances of survival are pretty slim. Yeah, I, I, that's a really important point that you just brought up there. So a lot of people will talk about following the farmers and doing what the farmers, and that's good. But at the same time, you have to keep in mind that there's farmers out there that are farming hundreds, thousands of acres, and you got to keep in mind they got to start at some point when you're talking yes. about having a window of planting. When we're talking about food plots, waiting for the optimum time is so important. Now I know if you're renting a drill, you might have to, you know, be on, you know on a waiting list, and maybe the optimum time doesn't happen if you have your own drill, you know. 
you have that luxury of waiting like that. I want to circle back real quick. So we've, we've talked about uh, building soil, kind of seeing the fertility happen and, and the release process unfold. And we know it takes time. One part of that transition that's really, really hard for people to swallow, and you, you made mention of that, is, is weed pressure. And and I, I talk about this with a lot of people. You know, there's there's three, what I would consider three main components of, of weed control, uh, and that's uh, that's chemical, that's culture, mm-hmm. uh, uh, chemical, me- mechanical, and yeah. uh, biological. So you know, yeah. you know, mechanical, you'd be hand pulling, you know, uh, tillage forms like that, but that causes an array of problems as we've already discussed. And uh, the chemical, chemicals are a tool, but man, we've just got, we've just be developed a system that has become so reliant on chemicals and we don't put enough weight into that biological system so my my uh, I'm curious, you know, whether you want to use the the proving grounds as your starting point or maybe clients you've worked with across the country um do you see any common trends or, or timelines as far as weed pressures and, and seeing this build and, and and slowly deteriorating and managing that when you go to this system yeah uh, one tip we mentioned just briefly earlier, there t- tends to be less weed pressure of really noxious weeds if you plant in the fall going into winter. Mm. Summer is just full of a whole gamut of weeds. So if you're, you got a big weed seed base or, you know, you're taking over a weedy field or maybe field got let go for some years, it may be better if you want to use no or very limited herbicides to start in a fall with a fall crop. It's just going to be less pressure. If you're going to start with a spring crop, you may want to use a Roundup Ready bean or something that's really a, a sunflower, something that's really readily accepting of certain herbicides to clean up that field. Now, we need to realize, and this research is out of Pennsylvania, actually Penn State, but on any square foot of soil a couple inches deep, so, you know, a foot by foot by two inches deep, there are millions of weed seeds. And you think, oh, I've never seen a weed seed and I'm digging worms. Remember, these noxious weeds are so small, you wouldn't see them. They're the same color as dirt. You're just not going to see them. But they're... Any dirt pile you see stacked up like where they're building a new house, give it a little bit of time, there's weeds growing all over. It's just you see it everywhere. The examples are omnipresent. So you may have to use a herbicide first year or two even during that spring. A, a really good hint in your fall crop, you want to use something like cereal rye. I don't sell cereal rye. It's just a, it's a tool. It's one of many good tools. But it has a chemical substance in it very similar to what walnut trees have. If you ever had a walnut tree in your yard, you notice the grass doesn't grow very well under it. And that's because that tree puts out a natural seed aside. It kills seeds, it kills competition, so it gets all the, the goody for itself. Cyril Rye does that same thing. It's a big, long, fancy name, uh, but it's not strong enough to like kill a clover seed or a corn seed. But those little small weed seeds, it does a good job of inhibiting. So I'm gonna say a, a good thick stand of cereal rye. It's not spotty, you, your blend had 30 or 40 pounds of cereal rye plus a bunch of other things. You're probably going to knock out 50% of your weeds right there. And that's a round number. A lot, a lot of context to your local environment. Mm-hmm. And then one thing I do, I, I like seeing a lot of deer. I run a, my deer pop, and I have really good habitat, so I can run a little bit higher population. Okay? If you've got a lot of deer, maybe you're a smaller piece of land, your neighbors aren't harvesting does, for whatever reason you got a lot of deer, you need to realize that the manufacturer, the seed supplier, put plant, I'm just going to use round numbers, 50 pounds per acre. And 50% of those are really attractive. Soybeans, you know, uh, think of four or five species that are deer just going to eat as soon as they pop out of the ground. Right. Well, all of a sudden you got half a stand out there and you get all the sun hitting the ground and weeds are going to pop up. That's a given. So if you're planting a really a blend that has 
roughly half the seed's really palatable. You want to plant more than what they recommend. If they plant that they say 50 pounds and there's no magic number here, but consider 75 pounds. Seed's the cheapest thing we do have a food plot, right? You you buy a tractor, you win a drill, you bought the land, you lease the land. Seed should be the cheapest thing in your whole operation. So a few extra pounds of seed should not be a deal killer. If you're planting a monoculture of clover, adding more seed may not help you much. Uh, but if you're planting blends, realize that those most palatable species are going to be consumed before they mature. And there's going to be a gap that allows sundown. So I often plant 25 to 50% more than what's printed on the bag. And I plant with, I try to plant. I'm like everyone else. I'm busy. I'm traveling. It's turkey season this spring. That's a big detractor for me. But I try to plant when soil conditions are ideal for those just to blow out of ground and get ahead of the deer. Because a lot of issues with weed pressure is just simply a lack of competition from the desired crop. So farmers learned long ago, if I go from planting 30-inch corn to 15-inch corn, I don't necessarily get a bigger yield. That's been shown, but I have less weed pressure. Some farmers now are being, because what drives corn production is photosynthesis. And I think this plays into wildlife, so I'm not going off the rabbit trail. But a lot of farmers are now planting, or not a lot, let's say 5% of farmers are planting 60-inch row corn five feet apart, same population. If they're planting, I'm using round number 20,000 kernels per acre in 15 inch rows, they're planting 20,000 kernels per acre, but in five foot rows. And those corn stalks are just, you know, they're side by side in a row. But when you go this way, instead of having a neighbor over 15 or 30 inches, you're getting full sunshine. And sunshine is what grows corn production. That's why the outside rows of corn usually produce more than the inside rows of corn because they're not competing for sun. So a food plotter could plant 60 inch row corn and then plant a blend of, you know, goody stuff in the middle. The nitrogen off the goody stuff will feed the corn, cutting down on your fertilizer costs. You've got browse all summer and then a grain for the winter. And a lot of production, not a lot again, 5% or so of production farmers are really making massive improvements in their soil quality because they don't have that monoculture without giving up yield or their profit, they're actually becoming more profitable because they don't need the weed suppression and they don't need the fertilizer by doing that. So thinking out of box, trying some different techniques. And again, that was a practitioner. The guy that first did that that I read about was a retired engineer from John Deere that said, well, I've been building these machines all my life. I want to try farming, but I want to do the same thing. And that's where 60 inch row, as far as I can tell, that's where 60 inch corn come from, a, a practitioner being willing to try something different. Yeah, that's a great point, and you, you brought up a lot of really, really great points there. Um, <clears throat> losing my train of thought here because we've got so many good topics here. Oh, um, sorry. Uh, no, it's it's great. I, I love this. I, I really love your your enthusiasm over over everything we're talking about because it's it's really it's really important. I think food plots are one of those things that uh, a lot of us have this mindset that there's one way to do it. There's there's one specific way. There's going to be the best food plot for this property, and that's the way it is. And I think the truth of the matter is that food plots, just like anything else, are an experiment. It's a, it's an ability to tinker and figure out what's going to work good in your landscape and your soil and this and that. Um, the example and I'd kind of like you to to dive into real quick here is there, there's a misconception that. You, with mixed blends, we talked about this earlier, that you certain species you can't mix. Now, you've obviously proved that with the, the, the blends that you've you've planted on the, the proving grounds. 
Just real quick, can you explain to people why that might be misguided information based on maybe seeding rates or something along those lines? I think a lot of people start off saying you can't mix seed varieties because grandpa didn't do it. That's just, mm. you know, common everywhere. And B, if you put them in your over-the-shoulder spin seeder, I mean, I've got a bunch of those I plant in my little small food plots with all the time. Or you got a no-till drill or a cone seeder on the back of your tractor or whatever. You're thinking, well, i got to calibrate for one size seed. And I still hear that vicious rumor till today. And in all my years of planting blends, experimenting, helping landowners plant blends, whatever, I've had one example because everyone says, well, the seed will separate by size. And you have, a, you know, facetiously a strip of corn and a strip of clover and a strip of turnips, and a strip of okra, whatever you got in there. I've never seen that. And I, and I had it explained to me by, again, another farmer, that this makes sense. I never knew why. I just knew I'd dump five bags in my drill and stir it up a little bit and take off. And I never ended up with just small, heavy seed like brassica on one end of the field. I've never seen that happen, ever. Mm -hmm. And I think different seeds, if you think about it, and you go to the garden store and get four or five different species of seed put in your hand, they're obviously different shapes and sizes, but they're different textures. Beans are pretty smooth. A lot of combine, some people now plant beans and corn together and they separate them right in the combine and the corn is hard and slick. So it goes down the cone faster and that shoots off into one bin and the beans are round and slower and a little, little rougher edge and they shoot to another. That's the only separation process. So when you have that, it's almost like a strata, a gravel in a creek bottom. You've got big and flat and rough, maybe a pumpkin seed. I plant viney plants in my food plots. And the advantage of a vine isn't necessarily, boy, deer love pumpkins, although they do, they don't eat the vines much, but that vine will seek, this is so cool. Again, this is God's plan. Mm. It will seek to find sunlight and make a big old pumpkin leaf. Well, guess what? If it's finding sunlight, weeds would have grew there unless that vine found it. Yeah. That's the sole reason I put viney plants in my food plots is just another simple, very inexpensive uh, biological weed suppressor. Because you're going to have skips, your, your drill missed a lick, you hit a rock and it bounced and nothing grew. It, just, it happens to everyone, folks. We, and you said something earlier, I want to say, food plotters have a bit of a challenge because a farmer's got, you know, a, a real expensive precision no-till drill. That baby could plant on the moon. We're out here with probably, you know, not a $100,000 drill plant in food plots. We're out here with something a lot less. It's great quality equipment for our mission. But it's not a precision computer guided planting instrument that's driven by AI, artificial intelligence. That's not what I or most food plotters use. I got a bag out here walking, you know, yeah. trying to trip on a rock or a stone. Um, but that stratification, now, in one time, it was last year, a good friend of mine, David Smith, uh, has a pretty big food plot operation, a good drill in the, in the mountains of Alabama. And David's a great farmer. He's taught himself through the years. I've learned a lot from David. And he started planting blends for the first time. I kept nudging him a little bit. He always planted monoculture soybeans and wheat or something like that. I started nudging on him. And he had a, a bigger drill than most food plotters do. David, when David gets into something, he's like really into it, you know. So he had a big old really wide drill. And at the start of morning, he's just dumping. I think he had like 20 bags of seed or something. And he plants all day long, just going up fields, cross creek, whatever. He's just going. And at the end of the day, those last food plots, I'll have to say, were a little heavier on Nebraska's. Those small hard seeds had settled and, you know, and kind of stratified in there. Only time I've ever seen it in all my years. And with all the farmers, I worked with ag farmers too. All the farmers, I've never seen that happen 
David had a unique experience, but I've been doing this for decades. Literally, I've never seen them stratify. And I think another thing you hear people complain about is that you see you see competition between certain species. I know one thing I've heard, like you, you can never mix uh, cereal grain with a brassica because they're going to compete with each other. And uh, I, I think one thing that I would say is appropriate seeding rates are really important. You know, you work with great companies like Green Cover Seed that do a great job of making a blend that has appropriate seeding rates. Do you have any other thoughts to that? Oh, I think you're exactly right. You know, Depending on Nebraska, two to four pounds is enough to seed an acre as a monoculture. So I see these blends that got five pound Nebraskas and 40 pounds of cereal rye or, you know, whatever it is in there. Well, of course there's going to be competition. You're stacking them in there like ducks at a duck shoot, you know. So uh, uh, getting a blend appropriate, doesn't have to be perfect. This is not precision farming, but getting it in the right range. Uh, and, and again, I like strata. Okra gets real tall. Deer like okra. Uh, and it's a great soil builder. Sun hemp can get seven, eight feet tall, depending on where you're growing it, but not very broad foot. You know, it doesn't have much of a footprint. And the leaves on sun hemp are about, tests about the same as alfalfa. And the great thing about sun hemp, it's kind of a woody stem, right? You don't want a whole field of sun hemp, but it's just a good part of a summer blend. It's a woody stem, so deer don't eat the stem, so they don't kill it. And it keeps putting off new leaves on the side. So it's pretty browse resistant, not 100%, but pretty browse resistant, more than a bean or a pea or something. So again, the appropriate blend and a real hint is adding, you know, some pumpkins or watermelons or gourds or some vine plant. Cucumbers, if you got extra cucumber seed, and it's not about feeding the deer. And you're not wasting anything because what the deer don't consume just becomes slow-release fertilizer for the next crop. You're never wasting when you're growing. And if it suppresses weeds and saves you you know, pick a number, 20, 40, $50 an acre of herbicide, plus your Saturday, you know, plus wear and tear on your tractor and getting a flat tire because you ran over an antler. That's a big savings. So a few pounds of a viney crop can really help most summer food plot blends. It adds up in the long run. Now, another thing I've had questioned with me, and I'm sure you've had this question many times, is a lot of people will say, well, planting two times a year, that gets expensive. And I just want to kind of focus the fall blend mostly on, um, and not worry about this, the summer blend. Um, there's some, from my point of view, there's some you know positives to that. But what's your, what's your general yeah. response to people when, when, they, when yeah. they make that comment? I, you know, I'm fine if they want to do that. But I think you got stepped. If you leave it dormant all summer, weeds are going to grow, right? Weeds are God's. God does not like bare soil because, you know, we need, we need plants leaking carbon to feed the microbes. That's a given. That's not going to change from the Sahara to here. Literally, it's not going to change. So Nature Hates a Vacuum was published by a really famous scientist back in the 1800s. And that's still true to today. That was Voltaire, by the way. But, um, so if you're not planting a summer crop, weeds are going to grow and you're going to disc or herbicide or something to control those weeds for you plant your fall crop. B, weeds tend to be more of a monoculture. I got all pokeweed or pokeweed, a little bit of ragweed or whatever. I want that good blend feeding those different microbes to give me free fertilizer for the soil. So I, I, I'm going to plant, I'm going to throw a round number out of 50 bucks an acre, 70 bucks an acre, depending on what you're planting. For the seed, then you got some labor, you know, however you calculate your time, uh, diesel fuel, whatever. That's cheaper than buying fertilizer and herbicide seven days out of week. Mm. Th those numbers are solid. Absolutely. So I'm going to plant a blend. I'm going to keep deer conditioned to feeding there. That's kind of our goal as deer hunters, right? I don't want my neighbors seeing them. I'm all seeing them. That's just 
being honest. Sounds so selfish, and it is selfish. But that's what we want to do. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to keep them conditioned. I call that never cleaning the table. What really gets me is the guy's got a beautiful summer crop, man. I mean, it's, it's you know, magazine picture out there. And then about four weeks before deer season, he disc it up, which is the same as cleaning table. I shut the restaurant. We are closed here. We don't want to feed you. Please go feed on a neighbor's property. Mm-hmm. The one is why his deer all left right before deer season. But if you plant green, you've got stuff growing. You plant through it. There's still stuff to eat. It's dying, but there's stuff to eat while the new crop is coming on. And that one tip has kept a lot of bucks home on a lot of properties. I really like that. And we're, we're getting close to a point where I'd like to wrap this up with you. I have one more question for food plots. And then I got two other questions, uh, short answer questions that are, you know, completely different. But the last thing, you know, we, all the whole conversation, we're talking about the things that I love, you know, farming, we're talking about heavy equipment, no till and stuff. And a lot of us, you know, you, you'd mentioned about uh, hand tools and doing stuff. And I know that on Proving Grounds too, you're going to be doing some stuff, more stuff with hand tools and stuff. Can you give any suggestions um, from seed management, uh, planting management, uh, residue management in this system with minimal tools and making it a success in the right, in the right, is there any changes yeah. from to you to implement in that? Yeah, that is a great question. I love, I call them hide hills, little small plots sure. on a ridge. You can't get a tractor to, I have a bunch of them. We probably should show more of what we do. Um, so there's a couple of rules in any farming, gardening, whatever. One is real, it's real basic. Seed needs to make, needs to make contact with the soil. So if you're using hand tools and you had a really thick fall crop, I mean, the deer ate it down and got spring and it bolted because the deer eating native vegetation or in the neighbor's bean field or something. I mean, it's just dog hair thick. You walk through it broadcasting seed, a lot of the seed are not going to reach the soil. So you can do several things. Uh, you could use a herbicide. I choose not to. I tend to wait a little later and try to use a prescribed fire to remove much of that vegetation. It's something's going to be green and it won't burn. And just take a, a rake or a backpack blower. And, you know, I've usually got timber around my food plots here. Just blow a, the leaves out of the way on the edge of the food plot. That's your fire break. I'm burning an eighth acre. I can do it by myself real safely. You know, I, I light it on the, where the wind's blowing. So it's just backing across there. Even old man like me can run that quick and stay up with it. And, and when you burn, remember you're removing you're converting that top material to elements. The only thing going up near is nitrogen. The rest is falling to the ground. And there's 30 tons plus of nitrogen above every acre. We breathe it. We just got to convert it to something a plant can use. You should never pay for nitrogen. Plant some legumes. Um, but if you burn it, it makes a beautiful seed bed. But then don't stop there. You got to wait till rain's coming. Because if you broadcast your seed on that black surface and it's sunny out, you're going to roast those seeds before they ever germinate. And rain also, you know, raindrops falling about 30 miles an hour. It'll hit seed and help push it to the soil or splash a little dirt up on it, help cover it a little bit. So making sure seed hits the soil and you've got a rain coming real soon to germinate quick and grow is probably the best tip I can give anyone for using hand tools. There's no magic here. Just make sure that seed hits the soil. I really appreciate that. We, we've talked a lot about the release process in this food plot system, and I, I think that really covers a, a really great point in, in pushing through this this series of food plots. Um, so, again, I want to thank you for your time and your, your, your conversation. i got two questions for you real quick. So, um, if uh, let's say uh, – 
God has bestowed a beautiful gift on you, and you've got the, the opportunity to have the time and the resources to go on one adventure in creation. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Is that a hunt, or is that somewhere else? Or What, what would that be if you could pick a, a, a selfish trip in creation? What timing? God must have divinely put that question in your mouth, because uh, a good elk hunting more is really expensive, right? Yeah. I love elk hunting. I just love being in the Rockies when the leaves are changing, elk are bugling, and stretch your legs out a little bit. I, I, I really, I'm not a great elk hunter. I just love the experience. I have two daughters, Raleigh, who's 24, R-A-L-E-I-G-H, stands for Dweller by the Deer Meadow, Ray, R-A-E, 21, Hebrew for Dope. God and deer impact everything in my life. God first, family second. And my daughters, let me cry. Want to go to Alaska for a salmon fishing trip this summer, family outing. None of us ever caught a salmon in our life, right? Close we've been is a can of tuna or something like that. So I won't go on elk hunt. I will take my family salmon fishing this summer. That's much. That is really, really cool. Thank you for sharing that. And the last question. Uh, so you've you've onto a new project with the Proving Grounds too. I'm kind of curious in in this point in your career, like when you think step back, like what is the biggest thing that you want to you want if you want to let your mark on something? What what do you want that mark to be on 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 your career and everything? Well, I think my family is my legacy. Hopefully, uh, blessed that my kids are making way better choices at their age than I did at their age. Uh, I feel really passionate about improving soil health. I'm a deer biologist by training and heart. I feel very passionate about helping people understand because if we improve soil health, we improve water cycles. This is all well proven, not theory. We improve air cycles, cleaner water, cleaner air. We have more nutrient packed food. A brief example, spinach right now on average has 40% less iron in it than just 10 or 20 years ago because of depleted soils. So we have better human health. So. Uh, if I can educate some people about improving soil health, uh, I would feel that's a worthy life work. I really like that. Um, hey, real quick, you know, uh, most people that I, I think would listen to this have probably followed you and kind of know where to find you. But just real quick, plug everything you're doing where people can find you before we let you go. Yeah, I'm not good at that. Uh, just, if you search whatever platform you're using for growing deer, you should find us. Just, you know, buzzword growing deer. Uh, with, you know, YouTube, our channel, social media, whatever, uh, your phones. Gotcha. Uh, Dr. Woods, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for the privilege. Thanks for being a great host. And I do hope our paths cross. <laughs>